How did you get into comic books, Seth? So I got into comic books through my older brother. He's 10 years older than me. And so he obviously had a lot more disposable income than I did when I was nine or 10. Cut that cheddar. <laughs> yeah. And so, and he bought a lot of comic books, like a lot, a lot. And I would just go sit in his room for hours and hours and go through his long boxes and read old comics. Mm-hmm. So the ones I really remember reading are old X-Men comics. I read a bunch of those mm-hmm. um, and old Spider-Man comics. He didn't actually have, so that one was like a trade paperback. He had one of the ones that had like, Issues one through fifty of the original run of Spider Man, and that—that's the one I really remember, like hooking me, mm-hmm. and then just kind of going from there. But yeah, that's how I got into it, and then uh, you know went from there. Read a bunch of trades over the years here and there. Mm-hmm. I've kind of fallen out of it in the past ten to fifteen years, mm-hmm. just reading occasionally. But excited to dive back in with this new Marvel Unlimited subscription. <laughs> it's so. well worth the money. How about you, Sheridan? So the first comic book I ever read was a like old single issue I found that had to have been my dad's from like the 1960s of Ghost Rider. And I read it and I was like, I understand nothing. (laughs) And I didn't pick up another comic book until I was in my 20s. And I had read everything else Neil Gaiman had written except for Sandman. And then was like, well, I guess like I need more Neil Gaiman, so I'm going to have to read comic books. <laughs> and so sure. I started picking up the Sandman trades, loved them, went through those. And then the idea of getting into anything like Marvel or DC felt really intimidating to me. Yeah. So I kind of stuck with reading mostly graphic novels. I read some Walking Dead, Preacher, Watchmen, some stuff like that. And then it wasn't until... Several years later, I had a friend who told me, you would really love Jason Aaron's Thor run, and you should start with uh, Thor as a woman. It'll really be your jam. And he was absolutely right. I read it. I loved it. And it was kind of where I learned that you didn't have to understand everything. You could just jump into something and you would pick it up. You would pick up enough to follow the story. Um, but yeah, that was kind yeah, of my, it honestly point. is, it honestly is kind of like a soap proper, right? Where like yeah. having yes. all that history helps, but <laughs> mm. if you don't, you can just kind of like jump on the wall. And also like a soap opera in that everyone is sleeping with everyone else too. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, obviously. And it also, everything just resets to center. Like yeah. after a certain amount of time, you kind of have to, you have like these crazy story arcs and then you kind of have to like, yeah, it just come comes back, back somewhere. Exactly. Josh, how about you? Ooh, so I think the other day when we talked about this, I said the first comic I ever read was a Sonic the Hedgehog comic, but I was wrong because I got to thinking about it. And my cousin Dave had a couple of like what I assume are actually pretty valuable old Spider-Man comics just laying around my grandma's house um, that I thoroughly destroyed reading them over and over again nice. um, while I stayed there during the summers um, because I would read them and then I would like throw them down and I was like seven, eight. Um, and then after that I did buy the first comic I ever bought was a Sonic the Hedgehog comic because I liked the video game and they had it at Buchanan's and I read that. Um, and then I just started buying anything, anything they had at Buchanan's cause they had a little, like little comics. Just whatever they had at Buchanan's. Yeah. So listeners who don't know, Buchanan's was this old like grocery store in, yeah. in Mo- old Moore. Yeah. So they had, they had some Marvel and they had some DC and they had like a lot of like cartoony ones and Archie and I would just buy anything I could with my allowance and read that. And then I just never stopped. And by the time I got to high school, I had a job, so I was buying, I had like a subscription at Atomic Pop, and I would just go in and get, you know, whatever, 
whatever my orders were. Um, a lot of a lot of Batman, a lot of Superman, and a lot of um, like Spider Man and X Men. Uh, and then it just kept going from there. I, nice. I think the first big event that I read was World War Hulk, um, maybe, or maybe it was Secret Invasion. Whichever one of those came first. Came first. Um, and then yeah, just never never quit after that. So I guess I just never quit. Period. But just a big older. But I was never like your brother. I was never you right know, that far into yeah, it. Yeah. No. I, I wish that would have been he amazing. Had, I'm trying to think how many. <clears throat> Like how many he had on his pull list, and it was it was a lot that he was buying every month. I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't even say. I mean, probably upwards of twenty. Mm-hmm. So the, the most I've ever had on a pull list was twenty five, and I promptly stopped that because I was like, I can't, I can't keep up much, with what I'm doing. Yeah. So, and I was spending a lot of money, and they started hounding me. I didn't go back to. Uh, DZ Comics and more for a good seven months because the every time I'd walk in, she she would be like, you know, you have so much on backlog. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, I don't have money right now. So I just stopped going in. <laughs> Went back to going to Atomic oh, Pop man. and hanging out with Joey. So that was that was my experience. All right, well, listeners, welcome to Amateurs Assemble Comic Book Club podcast yep. for you. Whether you're new to comics, a regular at your friendly local comic shop, or just Looking to talk about your favorite heroes. I'm Seth. I'm Sheridan. I'm Josh. And we're assembled to work through some issues together. This week, we're diving into Ed Brubaker's Captain America run from 2004, issues one through six. Each week, we will begin by providing a little background that you might need to know, or that will at least enhance your reading. So Sheridan, tell us, who the hell is Bucky? James Buchanan Barnes makes his first appearance back in 1941 in Captain America number one by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Bucky is really Marvel's first attempt at introducing a sidekick character. When we meet him, he is at Camp Lehigh, a name you might want to remember, and he is a young orphan, ostensibly, it's a little (laughs) unclear at first, uh, who is being kept on the base as, and I quote, a mascot of the regiment. I'm not making it up, but I do not know what it means. Uh, conveniently, Camp Lehigh is also home to Private Steve Rogers, who has recently become the Captain America we all know and love. One night, <laughs> I can't tell this without laughing. So weird. <laughs> uh, Bucky walks into Steve's tent while he's changing, and he sees the Captain America outfit and realizes Steve's secret identity. <laughs> uh, Steve tells Bucky that he should tan his hide. Oof. Uh, but instead, he's going to make him his partner. And this is where I posit that Bucky Barnes' history of trauma actually begins, <laughs> not with his capture, but when he is conscripted into the U.S. Army as a child soldier after walking in on a man changing clothes, which I'm only sort of joking about, but I don't know. 1941 was a different time, so it's fine. It's all yeah, fine. Totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Buck and Cap team up with the Human Torch, Jim Hammond, not Johnny Storm, his sidekick Toro, and Namor the Submariner to form a group known as the Invaders, who fight together throughout World War II. In 1948, issue number 66, Bucky is shot and wounded and retires as Captain America's sidekick. And then this is where things quickly get a little messy and the retconning begins. In 1964... Stan Lee and Jack Kirby reintroduce Captain America in Avengers number four. 
The story that gets told is that while attempting to foil a plot by Baron Zemo back in 1945, Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes are both presumed killed in an explosion. So now, any appearances of Cap and Bucky after 1945 are retconned to be other people who have taken up their mantles. Of course, most of us are familiar, thanks to the MCU, with the fact that the icy waters of the North Atlantic freeze Cap into a capsicle, but the super soldier serum pumping through his veins keeps him alive in suspended animation. The Avengers find him, thaw him, and revive him, for which he is not particularly grateful at first. His first thoughts upon waking are of Bucky, and he calls out for him before remembering that he's dead. These first few moments of Cap's return are really colored by his feelings of overwhelming grief and the guilt of not being able to save this person that he loves, but also the weighty responsibility of being Captain America, which he feels he's obligated to continue to do. There's a lot about gold and silver age comics that can be pretty easy to dismiss or mock, but to me, the fact that this is Captain America's first thought is actually pretty wrenching. And although Bucky manages to stay dead for decades, which is quite a feat in comics lore, <laughs> yeah. uh, he's never forgotten, at least not by Cap, and becomes to Captain America a little like what Uncle Ben is to Spider-Man, someone whose death is such a pivotal moment for a character's development that it feels almost impossible to bring him back. Almost impossible, that is, for nearly 60 years until 2004, which brings us to our issues for today. Yeah, so we're kicking things off with Ed Brubaker's Captain America number one. Uh, so not actually the first issue of Captain America, obviously. No. Yeah. Just uh, one of the many renumberings that uh, constantly occur in comics that you're aware of if you, you know, Just have any exposure to All that. the time. But anyway, so this is issue number one from 2004. Um, and so we're going to get right into it. Uh, this arc is called Out of Time. And we're gonna just going to give you a brief overview of what happens in the issues. So in issue one, we're introduced to Alexander Luskin, who's a renegade, former Soviet Russian agent. And we open with him kind of in the outskirts. There's a hero that tries to take him down, but is rebuffed, killed, actually. Can't remember who that is. It's Red Guardian, right? Sure. I don't know. I'd, I'd never seen him before. Yeah, it's one of but the they were someone who of, worked for the Russian government. Yeah, it's one of the Red Guardians. I don't know which one though. Anyways, there's several. So Luskin is there, and he's meeting with the Red Skull. We find out that he is, you know, selling advanced weaponry from the fall of the Soviet Union to the Red Skull. Uh, we get our very first glimpse of the Winter Soldier here, but without knowing anything about it, who it is, or anything like that. And he's suspended there in a vat of green liquid. Red Skull looks at him, and he's like what that can't be and tries to buy it. But Luskin uh, would not accept anything other than the cosmic cube. That's a pretty fair deal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like one of the most powerful uh, artifacts, artifacts items in the universe. Question mark. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but what a trade for a guy in green liquid, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so from there, that's, um, that was said as like sometime in the past. We don't really know how long, but obviously around the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, we fast forward to the present day, presumably around 2004. And we check in with the Red Skull, who's in New York City, having reassembled the Cosmic Cube. And he's pre preparing to use it to finally take down Captain America. 
Red Skull does a lot of monologuing in this issue. Like, a lot, a lot. He's really good at it. He is really good at it. It's a lot of fun. Um, so we finally see Captain America eight pages into this issue, which, <laughs> you know, that's like a third of the way through yeah. in his own book, the very first issue. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it works. Um, and w- we see Cap kind of in a dark and angry place. He's... Um, He's debriefing with his S.H.I.E.L.D. liaison, which is Sharon Carter, also known as Agent 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you obviously know her from the MCU. She's in that, getting a bigger role now. Um, but he's debriefing with her, and he flashes back to an encounter he had the previous week fighting terrorists on a train. There's a pretty fun action sequence where Cap definitely kills multiple terrorists <laughs> uh, on his way to stopping a bomb on the train from exploding in New York City. Sharon believes he's gotten more violent, which, I mean, obviously he has. Yeah. Like I said, like killed some dudes. So many. And we learn here that Cap, he confides to Sharon that he still dreams about the death and destruction he saw in World War II. Cap and Sharon talk some more about the terrorists that he stopped, which they were able to identify as AIM, but they don't know their purpose or what's going on with them. It seemed to be kind of like a defunct arm of this group, and their motives really aren't clear. Shield is kind of stumped, which may be a recurring theme going forward in this arc. Mm-hmm. Shield stumped. What? What? How could it happen? They're so on top of things. <laughs> so we continue following Cap, and he enters his hologram department, which is pretty cool, actually. They hologrammed out like what, like a half block yeah. or something for him, because mm-hmm. he's afraid he can't be. He feels like he can't live near other people for yeah. fear of the people coming after him. As he enters his hologram department. We see a Breaking Bad looking guy watching him, <laughs> which we later see was a mask worn by the Red Skull. Yeah. Who's, you know, just creeping, creeping a little bit. Um, then we close the issue back with the Red Skull doing some supervillain monologuing about his plans for Captain America. And as he's doing that, he receives a call from Alexander Luskin, again, tying back to the start of the issue. Luskin again inquires about the cube, kind of subtly threaten each other a bit. They're just like, yes, I have it and I can do whatever I want with it to you. And then Luskin says, I can't remember exactly what Luskin says, but then Red Skull is like, are you threatening me? (laughs) And and then we don't know his reply because then all of a sudden the Red Skull is shot. Shot to the heart and you're to blame. You give Winter a bad name? I I tried. We see after he's shot... A mysterious figure, like uh, zip lines across to his apartment, retrieves the cosmic cube and confirms that the Red Skull is dead. And that's just like a pretty, it feels like a pretty iconic splash page at the end with just the Red Skull's body just laid out. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot more blood in this series too than in most Marvel comics. Um, Just in, I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it was, it was very surprising, like. That they conf- they like confirm that he killed people, yeah. In that stopping that terrorist attack, yeah. that's not something that usually happens in comics. Period. Definitely not with Cap. Yeah, I mean, he straight up throws a guy off a bridge into a wall <laughs> from a moving train. I mean, like I didn't survive. He could be fine. <laughs> he could recover. Uh, issue number two opens in the tunnels beneath Manhattan with a crew of aid flunkies. So aid is an offshoot of aim. Um, I don't remember the exact. Um, what what the words mean, but yeah, this is where the amateur part comes in, where we don't entirely <laughs> know what these remember. groups are. Yeah, I mean, I know what aim is, and I know what aid is, but I don't remember what the names are. So, like, they're they're essentially like 
terrorist scientists that have their own island. And then aid split off from AIM to do even more um, terroristy, terroristy things. Terroristy, things. <laughs> terroristy science Get things. their terrorism on. So a bunch of aid flunkies are waiting for a now dead Red Skull to call them with their marching orders. A very annoyed Crossbones shows up and tells them to get to work and to do what they've been ordered to do. We jump to another of Cap's mini flashbacks to see him and his invaders outnumbered and overrun by Nazi forces. The flashback becomes more hopeful. We see the tides begin to turn in our hero's favor, only to be brought down again by a mortally wounded Bucky who then dies in Cap's arms. In the present, Cap wakes up from this nightmare, Confused by the events that never actually happened, but seem so real to him, his dream analysis will have to wait, however, as he receives a call from Sharon Carter. S.H.I.E.L.D. needs him scrambled and ready to go ASAP. Something big has happened. Cuts Nick Fury escorting Cap down the hall of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s flying potbelly stove that they call a helicarrier. S.H.I.E.L.D. forensics needs a blood sample from Cap to ensure that the corpse they believe to be that of the Red Skull is indeed real. It's Steve, never a problem to take a blood sample from a super soldier. So Yeah, I know. Fine. That's just something right. that no one's ever had an issue with, right? Steve's DNA is needed as the Red Skull's consciousness has resided in a clone of Cap's body for the last several years. So prior Comics! To, <laughs> comic books! Soap, it's just a soap opera. That's all it is. Yeah. So prior to this story arc, a Nazi geneticist Armin Zola had obtained DNA samples of Captain America years earlier, so even before that, arranged for the Red Skull's mind to be transferred into the clone body of Cap at the moment of the Red Skull's death. This action paved the way for uh, many of Cap's earlier famous adventures, including being ousted as Captain America per time by the U.S. government, introducing a pre-insanity John Walker who eventually became, as we know, a U.S. agent, spoilers for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, to be appointed as the new Cap. Anyway, Steve is resistant to believing that this dead body is the real Red Skull because comic books, and insists that this could be yet another clone or a trick of some kind. The situation becomes even more concerning for Cap when he learns that a mysterious caller tipped S.H.I.E.L.D. off to the dead body with mounting unease. Steve insists on seeing the place where the skull died. Inside the crime scene, Cap discovers that Red Skull had been wearing... A mask, uh, breaking, breaking Bad, breaking bad mask. mask, yeah. And had, in fact, been inches away from Steve on the street earlier that very day. Cap recounts how the U.S. Army created Cap specifically to combat the threat of the Red Skull. Before he can explore the mix of relief and grief that he's experiencing over the potential death of his greatest enemy, S.H.I.E.L.D. discovers the container for the now-missing Cosmic Cube. Without knowing what was inside the container, but seeing they can track the energy signal of whatever was inside, and therefore track the Skull's killer. Cap and Sharon head into the sewers as a result. So frustrated and confused, Cap bickers with Sharon about not needing a strike team for backup as well as expressing growing frustrations with her assignment as his handler, um, which seems to be a theme in the first two issues. Just he's frustrated yeah. with them watching him. The other shoe drops as Sharon grudgingly admits that Nick Fury is suspicious that Cap may have murdered the Red Skull himself and has assigned Sharon to be his babysitter and try and discover the truth. Before they can finish their discussion, they stumble onto the same aid flunkies from page one. A beatdown ensues and Crossbones bravely runs away. Aid employees now unconscious, our heroes discover what AIM was doing down in the dark. A massive firebomb that would detonate in the heart of the city, causing untold destruction. It all starts coming together when Fury informs our heroes that the container contained a cosmic cube. This issue ends with Crossbones bravely emerging from the sewers to inform aid via payphone that the skull is dead, but they will be moving forward with the plan of mass destruction regardless. In a deserted London tube tunnel, our bodies are discussing the recent demise of the Red Skull. His death won't stop their explosive plans, but the gunfire they hear in the distance <laughs> might. Back on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier as they race across the Atlantic, Sharon pulls Cap out of a meeting for some 
tactical insight, which is really just an excuse to tell him that it's clear his mind is elsewhere and he needs a break. As he splashes some water on his face in the bathroom to try to focus and draw his attention back to the present, he once again drifts into these recurring memories of World War II. In this memory, he and Bucky are investigating a tip when Zemo and his men surprise them and Cap is shot in the chest. As Cap comes back to the present, he wonders why that specific memory is surfacing while also suspecting that the memory isn't even accurate. A call comes in from Union Jack, Captain America's British counterpart. We need more Union Jack. And he tells them that they found the Red Skull's followers, including Mother Knight, all dead in the tunnel where we last saw them. The bomb they'd planted is missing, which means the Cosmic Cube and one of the Skull's WMDs are on the loose. When they arrive in Paris, Cap takes out an AIM hoverjet in a fiery action sequence where I think it's pretty safe to assume there are some civilian casualties. Yeah, safe. Uh, They discover that AIM did steal the WMD back, but S.H.I.E.L.D. is no closer to figuring out who has the cube. Fury gives Cap and Sharon the night off, but while they explore Paris together, Cap's mind is on the last time he was there in August of 1944 when the invaders fought alongside the French resistance. It's actually a pretty touching flashback as Cap recalls the immense bravery of the French people. And he talks about how angry it makes him when people refer to them as cowards um, because he witnessed the kinds of things they did to try to save their country. Meanwhile, in a bar outside of Pittsburgh, Jack Monroe is watching Cap's Paris exploits on the news. If you aren't familiar with who Jack Monroe is, he's one of the early retcons of Cap and Bucky's 1950s adventures. It's kind of a convoluted story, but he winds up becoming the Bucky uh, to William Burnside, who legally changes his name to Steve Rogers and undergoes plastic surgery to look just like Steve. Like you do. Yeah. Like you do. They both receive a knockoff super soldier serum that, to no one's surprise, has some nasty side effects. Over the years, Jack becomes increasingly mentally unstable and paranoid. He's brought in and out of cryo as they try to rehabilitate him with varying but never lasting levels of success. Although at one point, Steve Rogers makes him his partner and even passes along his old nomad identity to him. Jack's tale is pretty consistently one of tragedy, uh, which is why we find him here drunk in a bar, unable to convince anyone that he was once Captain America's partner. As Jack stumbles from the bar, a figure approaches him. Don't I know you? He asks. No, the figure replies before shooting him and stuffing him in the trunk of the car. That brings us to issue four, which keeps the focus pretty heavily on the heroes that have taken up the Captain America mantle while Steve Rogers was gone. The issue opens with Alexander Luskin again being informed of Jack Monroe's murder. And then as he's there in the car, he has a discussion with his closest friend and confidant uh, about the dangers of the Cosmic Cube. We glean from this that Luskin is planning to use the cube in some sort of corporate takeover, some like hostile takeover event of another big corporation. The most boring way to use the cube, by the way. I just want to point that out. Like this frustrates me to no end. (laughs) It's boring, but does it work? Also, like, maybe that's part of what makes him a villain, right? Like, <laughs> just no yeah. originality. Just Capitalism just all along. <laughs> the real enemy. 
Uh, from there, we cut to Steve, who's working out some anger on a punching bag in a scene that is clearly the inspiration for the scene in The Avengers. Mm-hmm. A lot of callbacks in this whole series. A lot of callbacks to I mean, this series, the, yeah. Yes, that's what I meant. From the MCU. This, My bad. This, this run clearly <laughs> predates the MCU. No, no, no. That's what I meant. I'm saying years. the MCU, like, a lot of callbacks to this series. Gotcha. As he's working out there, he gets a call from Nick Fury. Uh, we don't know exactly what Fury tells Steve at this point, but we can tell it upsets him. And it feels like some something he needs to urgently be at because he calls Tony Stark Iron Man to ask for his fastest jet to be ready to take him. Uh, we do know what Fury doesn't tell Steve at this point, which is what he explains to Agent 13 Sharon Carter in a debriefing aboard S.H.I.E.L.D.'s helicarrier. They've found the rifle that was used to shoot the Red Skull in a rather easily found area let's say they found it like on a baggage claim in an airport right just a giant shooting rifle a big old label that said shield (laughs) right for shield attention nick fury but anyways on the rifle there's fingerprints which point to jack monroe Uh, sharon and nick fury discuss this um we find out that a lot of the heroes that shields imply employed are uh have tracking devices inserted in them, you know, because Shield's gonna Shield. Um, but we find out that the the one in Jack Monroe is an older version, so they can't track him, you know, uh, exact lo- his exact location. They can get her pretty close mm-hmm. based on pings. So Sharon Carter is uh, given the task to track down Jack Monroe, figure out how he's involved in this, if all if at all. And what's going on? We go back to Cap, and now we see why he was so upset from what Nick Fury told him. He's in Arlington National Cemetery, mm-hmm. and two gravestones there have been vandalized. Those of William Nasland and Jeffrey Mace. Uh, for those who don't know, which I didn't know going into this, Cap recounts a bit of their stories for, for well, really for the comic audience, but ostensibly to the service member that that's there present with him the audience stand in yeah exactly uh william nasland was the spirit of 76 he fought in world war ii alongside cap for a long time and i think possibly the first to take up the mantle of captain america when they went missing it's not really clear this is you know part of that retconning that sheridan was talking about earlier nasland in fact died under the guise of captain america while doing his duty, protecting a young JFK while he was campaigning for Senate. Uh, This prompted Jeffrey Mace, who was known as the Patriot, to also take up the shield and mantle of Captain America and continue that and protect uh, JFK long enough for him to become senator and then president, but apparently not long enough after that. Uh, they They can't see everything, folks. So this is all in a series of pretty kind of heart-wrenching flashbacks because Cap knew, he at least knew the spirit of 76. I'm not sure if he knew the Patriot at the time, Mm -hmm. but he fought beside him in World War II and he flashes back to some of that and some of the other things with the guys. Um, And we can see that these memories are really, really still getting to him. This is a a common theme so far through these first four Mm -hmm. issues. As he's driving away, Cap comes to the obvious conclusion this desecration was a clear attempt to provoke him. If he'd known about Jack Monroe, 
he would obviously see this as part of that same ploy. Whether either Jack Monroe's fingerprints on the rifle or mm-hmm. even more uh, disconcertingly, his murder. Yeah. Um, as Cap is considering this, he once again flashes back to a false memory of Bucky being tortured by Z- Baron Zemo just before he disappears. As he's doing this, he's riding on a motorcycle and he's attacked by crossbow. This is where we first start to see that these memories are clearly unnatural because Steve can't break free of them even as he's in the middle of a fight. Yeah. He's just so overwhelmed by them. And so it's it's become obvious by this point that this is not just him reminiscing. Distracted Steve is beaten easily, so easily that Crossbones, foolishly, plot conveniently, just refuses to continue the fight with Steve like that and just leaves him there. This fight's not worth it. You're not in it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm pretty sure he would just kill Captain America when he had the chance, you know. But then where would our story be? Yeah, then where would our story short be? series about grief, if that's the case. <laughs> uh, so Crossbone mentioned something at the end about a Russian, which is like really their first clue that anybody Russian is involved. Because <laughs> once again, Shield's not exactly on it. <laughs> they're 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 catching up here. They're they're just like a little behind the ball. Um. So we cut at the end back to Agent Thirteen, Sharon Carter, who's getting closer and closer to finding Jack Monroe. She does some really good detective work, you know, because she's only within a, a certain radius, but is able to find the building that she thinks would be most tactically useful. So she goes to investigate. Her detective work was a little too good, it turns out. And she walks in on the Winter Soldier, who s- still catches her by surprise. We end the issue with Sharon knocked unconscious, fate unknown. Issue five, we open aboard the ridiculously bloated-looking S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. I'm not going to stop saying that because it's drawn so poorly in this uh, series. It's like a giant potbelly stove that's just flying in the air. Um, Do they even understand aerodynamics? I mean, clearly not. So we open with the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier with Steve easing Fury's mind regarding uh, someone pulling his strings, um, with quotes, uh, we learned that S.H.I.E.L.D. has finally done something useful and ID'd uh, General Alexander Lucan in connection with recent events. Welcome to the party, Nick. So Fury informs Cap that Lucan is a big corporate player with active Kronos operations globally. When Nick mentions Vasily Karpov, I'm terrible with Russian names, by the way. Um, Cap they're re- so easy. I know. <laughs> sure. Uh, Cap recalls the name and the now non-existent village of Kronos. Uh, we time jump to a flashback in 1945, and Cap recalls the events of he and the invaders working side by side with the Soviets during the war. Uh, Cap and a young Bucky are not secret about their disagreements between uh, Colonel Karpov and his men's methods, and reluctantly assist the sadistic Colonel in attempting to find a Nazi superweapon located in the village. Cap informs the Human Torch and Speedo model Namor of the plan to attack the village just before dawn, and the stage is set. Bucky sneaks into the town and systematically murders all the sentries, just like a normal 16-year-old would do. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's a child soldier. It's normal. Allowing the Soviet-slash-invader unit to enter the town. The easy entrance is short-lived, however, as Masterman, best villain name. Masterman. Masterman! He's a literal Nazi super soldier. Attacks, and the fight is on. The flying enhanced humans take to the sky to battle Master Man, and Cat, Bucky, and the Russians siege the city from the ground. 
Uh, before Cap and Bucky can take the super weapon, uh, a laser weapon of immense power, the Red Skull himself turns it on the Russians and everyone must take cover, the village being destroyed in the process. In the confusion, Master Man carries Red Skull away from the battlefield like a hawk carrying a trout and they escape into the sky. It actually really reminds me of the little screenshot you sent us of Falcon carrying Bucky. (laughs) It's it's very similar to that. He's just got him hooked under the arms. He just just... needs the the Bjorn. Yeah, little baby Bjorn. Little Bucky Bjorn. On the ground, uh, Karpov is claiming the super weapon as property of the motherland uh, when the entire rig explodes, killing several of his men. Cap scolds him like the grandpa that he is. Uh, (laughs) And Karpov explains that Russia does not have Captain America, nor does it have super soldiers or weapons. Um, All Russian can claim is the winter itself. Cap and company exit the scene and Karpov meets a young Lucan mourning his dead mother. Karpov, in so many words, lets the young man know that Russia is his mom now and takes him away from the burning embers of the once peaceful town. So jumping back to the now, Cap and Fury discuss who could be behind using the Cosmic Cube to alter Steve's memories. We learn that Karpov is now 25 years deceased, so it couldn't be him. This issue ends with the reveal that Fury has been keeping the Winter Soldier file from Cap the entire time, keeping it a secret out of the fear of the damage that it would do to Cap. Beneath the streets of Philadelphia, the Winter Soldier kneels in front of another bomb and assures General Lucan. Now, Seth's been saying Luskin, and I have Lucan written down, and one of us is wrong. I also have Lucan. (laughs) So I think Seth is wrong. Oh, yeah, Seth's wrong. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Russian so names. Seth's struggling. Russian That's fine. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that we're all reading Marvel Unlimited on our phones, <laughs> having to zoom in. Yeah. Anyway, he assures the general that the device is ready and set to remote. Beside him, we see the body of Jack Monroe, who has been left there as a scapegoat. When the soldier gets back out to his car, we see Sharon Carter bound and gagged in the trunk, which I would like to note means she was definitely in there with Jack Monroe's body for a while. <laughs> and the soldier assures Lucan that he will take care of her exactly as ordered. Back on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, Agent Neil Tapper and Director Nick Fury discuss the fact that Sharon has been missing for 24 hours. We learn that Tapper and Carter were together, but she ended things when he tried to stop her from working with Rogers since he was jealous of their history together. Oh, Sharon and Cap totally slept together in the past. Uh, Yeah, everyone sleeps with everyone. Right. It's true. And in the future, but that comes later. Uh, Tapper tells Fury that he tried to put his foot down and Fury correctly surmises that Sharon's response to that was to put her foot where her sun doesn't shine because Sharon Carter doesn't take shit. Fury tells him that he hasn't told Cap that Sharon is missing yet and hopes they can find her before he has to. In the English Channel, Cap touches down on a small, uncharted island. When asked why he's even there, Cap tells the pilot that this is the island where he died. So dramatic. (laughs) The memories that may or may not be memories are coming to a head, and he's gone back to the beginning, or rather, back to the end, Uh, to see if he can actually remember what happened. As he hikes through the wood toward this deserted castle that's haunted him, he questions what is real. There are some threads he knows he can hold on to, like Zemo's drone plane, the explosion, Bucky's death, but these other memories that have been resurfacing of their capture and Bucky's torture, he's less sure about. Uh, He thinks they seem so vivid that they must be real, and he really questions 
what he's remembering versus what he's been told, what's been in official reports. He wanders through the castle and stumbles upon a room where the brutality of this capture comes flooding vividly back to him. Uh, On the page, we see the ghosts that haunt him. Bucky, uh, with his hands chained above his head, is being tortured while Steve is forced to watch. And then suddenly Steve's ghosts become corporeal, uh, or at least their bullets are real as they zing off Cap's shield. However, when he throws the shield at them, the figures fade away again. And he finally realizes that these unlocked memories and strange dreams and vanishing Nazis are all tied to the cube's work. But even as he realizes that he's being manipulated, he's once again caught in a flashback, this time to Bucky's final moments before he's lost in the explosion. When Cap returns to the plane, he receives another vision, this time of Sharon being held captive. And Cap being Cap, he rushes off to save her. When he finds her, Sharon tells him that she knows at last who killed the Red Skull. And to the astonishment of Cap and readers alike, Sharon tells him that the man they've been hunting all along is Bucky Barnes. And now we see the Winter Soldier clearly for the first time. His long hair hangs in his face, and he's dressed all in black with a gleaming metal prosthetic affixed with a red star in place of his left arm. But he still wears Bucky's familiar signature domino mask. His crosshairs are trained on Steve, but he's instructed not to take him out yet, despite his feelings. He tries to assure Lucan that it isn't about his feelings, that he's worried that Steve will become a problem because he's a good man. But Lucan has other plans for Steve, and so the Winter Soldier follows through with his next task, detonating the bomb under Philadelphia. Steve and Sharon witness the explosion from the roof where Sharon is being held, and in the final scene, we see Lucan on his plane, holding the cube, his plan coming together at least for the moment. And that gets us through the first six issues. Nice. Hurrah. A lot of plot armor there on Cap. Like, could yeah. have died several times, but just doesn't. Well, you know. It's like he's the main character. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. We did get some good supervillain monologuing out of it, though. So, yeah, let's uh, do some thoughts and takeaways from this. Takeaways. So let's, uh, why don't you kick it off, Josh? What are you, your thoughts on these first six issues? It's not a feel-good story, starting off. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really like, I mean, it really is an exploration of grief and um, yeah. trauma um, that just just takes you and carries you through Cap's suffering, basically. Um, and you just kind of left to go through it all with him, through the flashbacks and the confusion. And they do a really good job of kind of exploring PTSD, but they're also mixing in hallucinations that weren't actually happening. And it's just, I don't know, they do a really good job with it. And it's amped up to 11 with the Cosmic Cube. Yeah. Right. Like. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that the the story actually is kind of unclear about like how much of what he remembers is real and isn't. Like it's yeah. sort of yeah. left up to the reader to mm-hmm. decide yeah. uh, like what were they actually captured and tortured? Uh, yeah. Maybe. It's, um, it's also it's just really... brilliant with the retconning, like the actual yes. comics history. Yeah. That's like the main thing when I was reading it that I was so impressed by and more impressed by the more I researched researched and and found out because it's amazing how much he makes the retconning of the comic story 
part of the tale. Yeah. Uh, really impressive. It's, it's reminiscent of the Alan Moore's Killing Joke, where they have the three origin stories of the Joker, um, because you're you throughout the whole like run of Batman, which is you know almost as long as Captain America. Like it's been for well, actually it's longer, I would say. Um, anyway. Yeah, I don't but, think he. I don't think Batman had a pause. Like yeah, Captain America. That's did. true. But you get several um, different origin stories for the Joker. And what Alan Moore did is he kind of makes them all canon while also not being canon. And that's really what this did is you see like a bunch of different like, well, this could happen, but it also could have been this. And was that real? We don't know. And just incorporating all of these different people who mm-hmm. either who have been connected to Captain America or who were Captain America. Yeah. And some of them connected directly with the retconning like you were yes. talking about. Yeah. Right. So. Um, I think he makes Jack Monroe so tragic. I mean, the story is so sad. Uh, I think we collectively decided we would skip number seven, Mm. um, which is a standalone that, if I remember correctly, is called like the lonely death of Jack Monroe. And it's really just his final days um, after he's told by Dr. Jane Foster that he's dying uh, because of the super soldier serum that he took to become his childhood hero, Bucky, mm-hmm. uh, and then winds up being killed by Bucky. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really sad. After honestly. slowly going insane. Extremely. Right. Like he yeah. spends all these years losing his mind. Um, and at the end, it's very clear how delusional he is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even as he is still trying to be a hero, like still yeah. trying to do the right thing, still trying to fight bad guys. But the problem is that he sees bad guys everywhere he looks um, mm-hmm. yeah. and while, sees conspiracy where it isn't. Yeah. While Cap is going through moments of delusion, like Jack Monroe is like all delusions with a few moments of clarity. Yes. Yeah. So, And those clear, clear moments are mostly just so he can go to a bar and drink <laughs> and get blackout drunk. I mean, like if I couldn't remember anything I was doing, yeah. maybe that would be the, the answer too. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, that's a really tragic and sad issue like honestly we could probably devote a whole episode maybe not a whole episode to that at least half an episode a lot we could talk about it for a while but it's i mean it just goes more into i don't know the whole thing talks a lot about ptsd and how um veterans are treated and it it really does kind of throw a lot towards that does a lot to flesh out that part of the story go ahead there you go uh, one of the things I was kind of surprised about when I was doing some of the research uh, for the Bucky Barnes segment, I uh, read Avengers number four, and it just really struck me, like, even there, it's so obvious, and Cap is not pleased to be alive, um, yeah. and you just feel this, the weight of how sad he is but it's like well but i'm captain america so i have to just keep on captain america-ing uh which he does um but you see that carried into this yeah where he's kind of still in that space of like he's going through the motions he's doing what he has to do but his mind is never far from the 1940s even without the effects of the cosmic cube yeah, and he's, I feel like he just starts in such a dark, angry place that, you know, people who are, like, briefly familiar with Captain America, right, like, aren't fully in the mythos, or mm. like myself, honestly, 
it's just not prepared to see like that version of Cap where he is just so he's so different. So he's not quite bitter, but he's close. Yeah. You know, and it's dark. Um, it was definitely interesting to see and see him. You get kind of used to that character and see that there's, you know, the good man that he is is still there underneath. Mm-hmm. It's just he's going through a lot. Well, I think the whole thing is that Brubaker really wanted to explore just Cap's trauma in general. And yeah. he does with like unrelenting like scrutiny of everything horrible that's ever happened to Cap uh, and Bucky, really. Right. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to me. Like there are some things it didn't the series didn't feel dated necessarily other than the flip phone that Steve Rogers has. I mean, I, I guess it does have a little video video. <laughs> it looks like a Nokia, but with like yeah. a video thing of Nick Fury. It's like mm, future. I'm not sure if that works. Um, but it mostly doesn't feel dated, but it does feel very much of its time of 2004. Like Cap is fighting terrorists. Mm-hmm. He's it's it feels like a time where America was really angry. Yeah. And that's reflected in Captain America, Steve Rogers. I feel like. Brubaker starts there and is working Cap back to what he sees as what he should be. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I feel about it, at least. But um, it was definitely interesting to see it in that way. I don't know. And the, uh, what issue was it? Was it issue three where they're in Paris? Mm-hmm. And he's doing that. That, like, the defense of the French people also is, like, very much in line yes. with that. Yeah. So, which at that time, for anyone who is too young to remember or who has blocked it out of their memory <laughs> for probably good reason. But, um, you know, that was the time of freedom fries, freedom fries. French fries and like French don't stand with us, you know, all this. And so that's like, I mean, that's actually a pretty strong stance to take, to have yeah. Captain America spend a page and a half, you know, in the third issue you're on mm-hmm. defending the French, the bravery of the French people in that way. Mm-hmm. So, and that he talks about that's why he loves Paris. Yeah. Um, Sharon is kind of pointing out the river and the boats, like how beautiful it is. Um, but Cap's mind is on the people. The like people, he loves yeah. Paris because he remembers how brave the people there were and how much their country meant to them, mm-hmm. what they were willing to sacrifice. Do you guys have any other thoughts on the first six? <laughs> Me. Um, I just felt like the f- the first issue felt a little like getting his footing with the character right like mm-hmm. cap seemed perhaps a little too dark a little too grim but maybe that's also where he wanted to start him to kind of like bring him up mm-hmm. I, I did feel like issues two through six were a good a good balance of like gritty with captain america and what he is you can kind of see that shine through a little bit even when it's more serious and a little more heavy mm-hmm. um yeah you guys got any other uh Deep thoughts? Sheridan, you didn't make a single The Body Keeps the Score reference. It'll come later. Okay. <laughs> Give her time. Um, we talked about, you know, seeing a lot of callbacks, the Avengers movie having a lot of callbacks, um, mm-hmm. as well as, um, I guess, all three of the Cap films, you know, seeing that. Um, I don't know. what. Can you guys think of any instances other than maybe the punching bags that we see, like, directly adapted to you know, the MCU. Well, I mean, obviously the biggest one is literally just Bucky. Yeah. Just the winner of Soul Joy, which it's like with as 
central as a piece as it is to the MCU, mm-hmm. it's a little wild to think about that like that character didn't exist until 2004 in that yeah. way. I genuinely didn't know that. Um, yeah. So, because I read this back in 2004 when it came out, and I, I just assumed I, you know, I'd been jumping around from DC and, and Marvel and stuff, but I just assumed that it was a character they were bringing back. I didn't realize that it was just something new completely. Yeah, and if you are reading the single issues, which I know Seth and I were, you can read the letters to mm-hmm. Ed Brubaker that people are writing like as the issues come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after the reveal in book six, it's a lot of like, but it's not really Bucky, right? <laughs> right, Ed? Really I mean, it can't be really him. be Bucky because Bucky is dead and Bucky stays dead. Like you wouldn't bring back like, Uncle Ben. So like you can't bring back Bucky. It's like literally okay. was quoted for a long time as the two rules that you can't do with Marvel. You can't yeah. bring back Uncle Ben, Ben, and you can't bring back Bucky. Right. So, wow. but that just shows like, if you can figure out how to do it in a way that's a satisfying story, which this definitely is, mm-hmm. like then rules can be broken. So yeah. I just want to see Uncle Ben out there, like killing people <laughs> and Spider-Man having to deal with it. The only well, thing I'll Uncle- accept is zombie Uncle Ben. Ooh. I mean, Uncle Ben wasn't trained as a child soldier, so <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> we don't know what he did for a living. We don't know what he was. But yeah, that's like obviously the biggest. Crossover yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know. There are several instances where they just show like a close up on Bucky's face, um, and I feel like the Winter Soldier film did that constantly. Like Cap would look and it would just was. zoom in on Bucky, That's staring right. at him, smoldering at him. <laughs> a lot of smolder, a lot of heat there. <laughs> I mean, it is arguably like the most important relationship in the MCU, right? Uh, or maybe yeah. not even arguably. Like just I would say outright. I mean, either yeah, Bucky it's... Cap or Iron Man, Spider-Man in the MCU. Yeah, I, I just feel like Cap's decisions with regard to Bucky like set a lot of things in That's motion. That's true. That's true. Because the whole... Right. It's basically... It, I mean, it drives a good chunk of the plot of the Winter Soldier. And then Civil War, it, like the whole thing, which is the yeah. fracture. And then that carries over with so much else. So... Interesting. Mm-hmm. I also think it's important that we let the listeners know that we're not just going to be talking about like Captain America comics. We're going to be going through like just jumping in different series all around. Right. But this is where we just yeah. start because it's great. We're going to like stay loosely tied to the Avengers and the MCU in general. Because mm-hmm. um, that like that's where we have touchstones. That's where mm-hmm. I feel like most people will. So yeah, and a lot of people are just getting into it. Like we're amateurs, and a lot of people are getting yeah. into it through the movies. Um, and then jumping into the comics, you know, so it's a good place to, it's a good center to kind of hover around. So that's this week. Next time we're going to be talking about, uh, what episodes or episodes, what issues is it? Eight through 14, right? Eight through 14, but skip 10 because 10 is a, like a weird standalone. Yeah. It's a tie into house of M. So yeah. Yeah. That's real weird. Read house that's of M later. Though, while you're at it. <laughs> just <laughs> do the, do the reading class and just, you know, get ahead of stuff. Um, yeah, so next time we're going to talk about issues 8 through 14. Um, listeners, we're going to try and do, what do we say, a bi-weekly? Like, we're not doing every week. We're going to do bi-weekly. Yeah, every other week. Give you guys time to read in between. So we'll tell you what issues are coming up, and you can read through them, and then we'll review them. So it works out book club style like we talked about at the beginning. If you want to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter at Pod. 
And you can find us on Instagram at amateursassemblepod. You can also write to us at amateursassemblepod at gmail.com if you have questions or ideas, comments, thoughts, fan art, (laughs) fan fiction. That's that's what I want. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, You can also find our episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, BlackMesaRadio.com because we are hosted out of the Black Mesa Radio Network um, where you can also find other shows like Moms Who Wine or Black Mesa Radio. Yeah, so do you guys have any other final statements, thoughts? What's our tagline? What's our outro? Amateurs, disassemble. (laughs) Oh no, that sounds so final. Amateurs, disperse. (laughs) Go home. Go home now. Bye, everybody. It's over. Mm -hmm.